Hey, everybody, it's Robert Gowan, Mentors Military Podcast, coming at you at 15 Perry Street, and we certainly appreciate these guys for helping us out. Now, I'm joined by my sidekick this week. Kyle Neal, how are you guys? <laughs> Kyle Neal. That was a long pause. I don't know why that was such a... I mean, it's... It's all right. All right. I'll keep rolling. <laughs> um, so at any rate, if you get a chance to support us out there on Patreon, please get a, uh, an opportunity to do that. Check us out. Uh, also look at our social media. We've got an Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, LinkedIn. We're, we're everywhere. So anyway, look for the Mentors, the number four MIL, and uh, check us out. Follow us and all that kind of good stuff. So we're joined in studio at 15 Perry Street with uh, our guest, Maylee, Maylee Chapin. Mm-hmm. Chapin. Chapin. See, I just, I screwed it up. It was really close. Maylee Chapin. And uh, her book is Terrorist Terrorist Attack Girl. Boy, I'm like really screwing up here. Terrorist Attack Girl. And uh, we're going to dive into this book. Um, As we get into it, for those who may not be familiar with the story, there may be something that I think a lot of people are, uh, who follow the podcast, an individual um, who recently came out that uh, you're going to hear about that um, is the backside of this story. So it's really interesting um, pertaining to our guests. So um, Maylee's story, first off, let's go to where you're originally from, Maylee, like I always do, because I always think it's interesting to find out where people come from and how they end up getting to the, the story. So what's, your, what's home? What would you guess? What region of the country do you think? Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> I would say Kansas, oh, Missouri, Ohio. 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 Yeah. Where about in Ohio? Right outside Columbus. Okay. Yep. People okay. can usually tell from the way that I speak, I guess. But Yeah, I knew it was Midwest. Yep. I just didn't know where. Yep. Um, okay. Ohio, Kansas. I guess there's not much of a difference there. It's all, um, it's all Midwest. Yeah, they, yeah, it's all Midwest. I mean, the Ohioans <laughs> and people from Kansas might disagree with you and think there's a difference. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Uh, sports fan? Uh, my parents are big. My Both my parents went to OSU, and uh, so Ooh. OSU. <laughs> Isn't it T-O-S-U, though? The Little T? Ohio State uh, University, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so big Buckeye fans, my parents. Okay. Not you, though. You know, I went to Stanford, and uh, we ended up playing OSU one year in the Rose Bowl, and so that was like a big... Were you at Stanford uh, when Andrew Luck was there? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. We have an Andrew Luck football in the house, and um, nice. God, talk about like one of the most genuinely kind, humble, down to earth people I've ever met. Um, so that was like the most I ever got into a sports rivalry. Probably was the year T O S U was playing Stanford in the Rose Bowl. Um, but I'm not like a big. I'm very personally competitive, but I'm I'm not a big like root for a sports team type competitive, but I'll go drink a beer and like have a hot dog. <laughs> Always. <laughs> sounds like you asked for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So you're um, going to be kicked out of Ohio though. Now I'm not going to be allowed back. <laughs> so you're growing up in Ohio um, and w- where you went to Stanford. First off, how'd you end up going to Stanford then? Actually, <laughs> oh, my dad's going to be so mad about this story. Um, my parents are both very into education. So, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny, I don't really know where they got that. They're both super smart, but very like self-taught. Both came from nothing. Um, my mom's from Puerto Rico. So like, you know, this crazy multicultural household in the middle of like farm town. It's really interesting. Um, but always the priority in the house was education. And, and it was very clear to me from a young age that they wanted me to get the best education I could. My dad always says, um, the more doors you open for yourself, the more options you have, which is something I still say. Um, 
And so it was like, okay, you know, gotta gotta really work at my education. And you know, I was a teen, like I rebelled, I got in all kinds of trouble, but always, you know, ensured that I was getting good grades and I was the valedictorian in my high school. And so um, my parents took me around to look at some schools. And uh, I had cut Stanford super early on. They had this like really rigorous core curriculum that I wasn't interested in doing. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I was like, don't waste my time with this nonsense. Um, I'm absolutely not going there. Uh, but I, <laughs> I did do a summer program at Harvard. And like, n- no knocks to Harvard. They're super awesome. The people who go there are amazing. It wasn't for me, right? Like yeah. very competitive atmosphere academically, not something I'm super interested in. Um, and And it was all about like, how much can you prove that you're smarter than the next person? I just wasn't, it, for me, it wasn't, I wasn't interested. And maybe that's not what it's like. Maybe that was specific to the summer program. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna sure. get all these calls from my friends. <laughs> I went to different schools. Anyway, so I didn't want to go to Harvard is my point. And my dad was like, I want my daughter to go to Harvard. He's, I think he really wanted to wear the like Harvard dad shirt. And so one, <laughs> One of the requirements you had to have to apply to Harvard was an SAT2. You had to have SAT2 like scores. And uh, so I signed up for them and then I skipped them. And then I waited until we were past the makeup deadline. And then I told my dad, oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then (laughs) it's like not the best plan. I was 17. And, uh, and then I told my dad, I can't, I like literally there's nothing you can do. I cannot apply to Harvard. And uh, you know that moment, like you ever seen a toddler throw a fit? Oh oh yeah. Bang their head against something, but then they like overdo it and they have an actual moment of like, oh, I think I overdid it. Like my parents are gonna freak out. I, I remember that moment so specifically of like, dad, I skipped my SAT twos because I don't want to go to Harvard. What first world problems, right? I don't want to go to Harvard and uh, you know, now I can't. And I will never forget how slowly he turned around in his chair to make eye contact with me. He just looks me dead in the eyes and he goes, you will find the most elite college that does not require SAT twos and you will apply. And that was it, that's all he said. <laughs> And I just like backed out of the room, got directly onto my laptop, the most elite school that did not require SAT2s with Stanford. And so I applied and honestly thought it was like crazy long shot, never thought I'd get in. And uh, I had never been there, didn't know anything about it. And uh, when the crazy admissions officers decided that that I could go there, um, we all went for a visit and fell in love. I was just, I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. great yeah. weather. People are so kind. Everybody stops to talk to you. And like some student like gave us a free tour of campus and showed us around. Campus is amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, one of my good friends from high school texted me uh, when I first started at Stanford. Um, oh my God, this looks like a resort for smart kids. And I still think that should be their tagline. Like yeah. I'm like, it is. It's a resort for smart kids. It's awesome. It's awesome. What'd you end up getting your degree in? Uh, public policy, which is uh, very similar to their economics degree. Um, but with a little more focus on how to like apply that in sort of government basically. So did you get land that job that you had here from the networking there or? No, no, you'll, you'll like begin to catch this theme with me. Nothing in my life really makes a lot of sense. Um, so like, right, never should have ended up at Stanford. Similarly, I probably never should have ended up at Google. Um, (laughs) I went to Bain consulting out of, out of college. Um, which a lot of of kids did, but I went there because my ex-boyfriend applied and didn't get it. And so I wanted to apply and get it (laughs) as like pure revenge. Um, So I went there and, uh, and I realized that like, I wasn't very, 
I wasn't very fulfilled. I, I wanted to be a teacher. I applied to um, Teach for America and got accepted. I was like, I want to go do something more like this. Um, and I was burning out at this job because it was like, you know, I'd work 12 hour days, 14 hour days, and I was always traveling. Every case I had to be and I was on the road. So, you know, you, you start at six in the morning, you like fall into bed around midnight, you do it again, also that you can make like Fortune 500 companies more millions. Mm-hmm. It was hard to find like meaning in that for me. Um, so I quit and I taught preschool for a little while. Um, I quit because my best friend from childhood died of an, a heroin overdose. And uh, I was like, life's too short, right? And so I quit and I taught preschool and I felt like I was like doing this thing that she would have loved. You know, I, I thought about her all the time back then. And then on the anniversary of her death, the, the day of the anniversary of her death, there was this mixer that I got invited to for Google. And I was like, I am never selling my soul back to a big corporation. But my then boyfriend, now husband, Paul was, was out. I can't remember what he was doing. And I didn't want to be by myself. So I went to this mixer. And from the mixer, they asked me to come and interview for a job. And I was like, no, I'm not doing it. And they told me the job would be families and education marketing, like getting education tools to young people who need them. And I was like, man. (laughs) So I sold my soul to another big company. So did they, um, how do they source you? I mean... So you, I, well, I mean, not, not, have you been invited to a mixer lately by uh, Fortune no, 50 Go- company? Google's not reaching oh, okay. out to the Neil They must not have time. your contact but, but I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. Kyle, why don't you go ahead and say where you live? Yeah. Where they can <laughs> if you could you. drop a letter. Yeah. Um, I think it's the man bun. I don't think they like that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we had a lot of those. I don't know. You'd fit right in. Um, no, they found me on LinkedIn. They recruit heavily from former consultants. So okay. consultants sort of learn to be this like... Uh, I always called it brains for hire, right? Mm, You're just young. You like love everything. That's what I do for a living. Yeah, exactly. You don't need sleep yet, especially the 22 year olds they love to hire. And uh, so they rent you out to a fortune 500 company for a while. And then uh, when you burn out, Google's like, Hey, yeah, you're pretty smart. You know how to apply it. You have some skills. You're used to sitting in rooms with C-level execs. Uh, Why don't you come hang out over here and work like 10 hour days and have all of the benefits. So it's a, it's a really smart part pipeline for them, I think. Yeah, I just kind of assumed that, you know, Stanford, maybe Google somehow were, you know, looking at that as a marketplace to, you know. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people. Source, yeah, it would make sense and such, yeah. but yeah, you you definitely threw me a crew, uh, curveball when you were talking about going into education because then you had to get your teaching certification. You to- chose a totally different path and then you end up getting, you know, like you said, attracted to Google and end up going with Google and everything. Very, 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 very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I no longer consult. I now, just to make things clear, work for a different company and mm-hmm. stuff. But consulting is one of those things I love. I, I more do internal consulting now mm-hmm. because it allows you to be the jack of all trades yeah. and the master of none in a lot of ways and just yeah. a, a very exactly. knowledgeable person to rest at the high level of yeah. conversation. Um, <laughs> it's true. Like, Put I that right. To, yeah, I I did not get my teaching certificate. So oh, you didn't. Be, I didn't. Oh. I um, taught at a private preschool. Okay. As, as technically a substitute that they brought in to take over for a teacher who was out on mat leave. Gotcha. Um, so I was like l- loophole there, um, which is how I was able to do it immediately after Bain. Um, but yes, it, like there's something so interesting. Like still to this day, I think being a consultant is one of the most interesting jobs I've ever had to put your hands in sort of the grittiest problems that C-level execs have to think through. And I don't, and you're 22, right? And you're like, yeah. I've never thought about this kind of thing before. And, and there's also something beautiful in like, because you haven't thought about these things before, you don't have bad habits or preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. So you'll see these like young kids come up with some of the coolest, most 
creative solutions mm. to these problems. It's really interesting way to learn how to think in a corporate setting. I thought it was really neat. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think uh, for individuals that are looking, especially come off active duty, if you're looking for opportunities out there, I mean, obviously project management is a great skill yeah. um, after coming out of the Army, and Kyle did that. Another opportunity, though, is consulting, yeah. because you'll be surprised at how much, if you have an education, you can put together your experience from the military and really put it and apply it to business in so many different ways. So true. It yeah. all translates. Exactly. Yeah. And yet a sort of different way of thinking, yeah. but a very principled way of thinking mm -hmm. that does apply really well i'm always amazed i worked with a great guy at bain um who i think was at stanford business school or harvard business something super impressive and he was a, a navy vet and it just he just had that just such a different way of thinking and yet very principled he could like write things out on a board and make you see patterns that had somehow escaped you for weeks as you sat there and tried to think it through. So yeah. that's uh, so very interesting. You put it that way. Cause I think I've even talked to Kyle about this. In some cases, if you're a really good consultant, you start seeing what I call the matrix. You yes. start seeing the ones and zeros falling from the sky where other people can't see it. Yes. Absolutely. And, and you're right. It, it is a unique skill set that if you have it already in some ways, then maximize that. So you're at Google and tell us a little bit more about what that job entailed then. Because what is, I mean, you kind of highlighted it, but what is it, I guess I, maybe I never thought about Google in that way. So yeah, what, yeah, what was it? Yeah, I, it's funny too, right? You say consulting is seeing the ones and zeros falling from the sky. That was so my experience at Google, right? Everything we do today is digital and sitting in the hotspot where those things are being made. And I had never really had a strong interest in technology uh, in undergrad and then I get to, you know, Google headquarters in Mountain View and you're watching people build the tools that you're going home and using. And as an internal employee, you try a lot of those tools before they're public, right? Mm. So you're on the cutting edge of uh, tools that are going to be used by like literally millions of people. It's, it's almost unfathomable to, to walk through there and have that experience. Um, and so you start to see the world like that. Like I know the guy who made the feature that my friend is paying at the cafe, at the cafe with, right? Like it's just, you start to see the ones and zeros falling from the sky, like truly. Um, but yeah, I had never thought about Google like that either. Yeah. I was shocked when they reached out to me. I was like, um, I didn't study CS. I think you have the wrong person. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the truth of the matter is they recognized that they could take people who excelled in consulting and apply them to a myriad of different issues, right? Yeah. And so I was brought in as a marketer who had no background in marketing um, and so I did everything from like make commercials and digital collateral and websites, like overseeing the, the creation of things like that to search engine optimization to, um, God, to like, how do we increase engagement time on our different platforms? And then later in my time there, this radical change happened where, um, we were seeing so much backlash against technology that that became the focus. And so my job became um, all about research, which is absolutely sort of for me, the, the pinnacle of my time at Google, because I'm a huge nerd. Like I'm just a nerd. <laughs> I just am. Um, and so when my job became about doing all this research and finding the patterns in it and, and then conveying to C-level execs why they should care among the millions of things that people are telling them they should care about, um, that was when it became so interesting. And as part of that, I also 
um, got to help with the launch of some new products. And so sitting behind these, you know, VPs of Google and, and speeches they were giving to millions of people and getting to write those speeches and practice them with, with these folks, um, it was just, it was like, I don't know, it's like I was 25 and on top of the world, I think. It was very interesting. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, how much travel did you end up doing? I did so much travel. Uh, I did so much travel. I With Google, I traveled to um, China, both Shanghai and... Um, and where else did I go in China? Well, there's this, oh, besides China, I was going to say, well, there was this place, but I mean, yeah, outside I did that of the- too. <laughs> um, I, I did two cities in, in China. I did, uh, South, I, st- I went to South Korea. I did some research in Tokyo. Um, a lot of Southeast Asia. Taiwan. Yeah. yeah those were all stops there. Um, I lived in Germany for six months for Google. Uh, I traveled all around. I was in the UK all the time. Um, and then when I wasn't traveling abroad, I did a ton of domestic travel. And, and a lot of that truly was for this type of research where we would do a blind study. We'd come and sit in someone's house. They, they knew they were participating in a research company about, in a research study about technology, but they didn't know for which company. And so we'd sit in these interviews and, and ask them you know, how they felt about different elements of their technology and how it affected their lives and their children's lives. And it was funny because some of them would start ranting about how much they hate companies like Google. Mm. And then at the end, you tell them which company you're from. But um, (laughs) man, that was like the coolest part of my job, sitting in people's living rooms and and hearing about their lives and then distilling that into findings for the people back in Mountain View was really cool. So how long had you been with Google before you went over to Kenya? So I started in March of 2016. So just shy of three years. Okay. So you had had a fair chance of travel, being yeah. with the company, oh, yeah. living this role and everything before you got there. Yeah. What was it that you were doing here? What was it yeah. you were sent to do? Yeah. And I was, it was in India actually that just the week before I was in Kenya um, for research. So uh, my role changed drastically through my time there. So I was brought in to do kids in education marketing. And on my first day, when I showed up for training, they were like, hey, we're Google. Things move a million miles per hour. A million miles per hour. That role no longer exists. You have a different one. Um, and I was like, <laughs> sorry, what? Uh, so, and I, it was tough. I really, you know, I had, I had said I'm not going to sell out to another big company. And I was like, okay, I'll do it because it's something that matters. And then that changed, right? And so... I remember going home and crying to my now husband and saying like, I'm going to quit. See, this is what big companies do. Um, but instead I, I went and met with that first manager and like to this day, one of the best humans that I know. And it was this wildly different experience of, um, my management team being really focused on like how to leverage my strengths really effectively and sustainably. So like they want you to go to Google and work there for the next decade, right? Like Bain is like, you're going to burn out after two years. So I might as well get the value out of you that I can in the meantime. That's one model. Um, but Google wants you to be there for a long, long time. And so it started to feel like this family, like truly this family. And so I was doing, um, some marketing work for the Android side of the business. Uh, and then that slowly evolved into, uh, the work that I was doing on like digital sustainability, basically. Um, so how to get people to not, uh, hate their relationship with their phone. Um, and so that was really, really heavily research based. And that was under another, um, amazing, uh, manager who I was really, really lucky to have. Um, so it's just like this, it's hard to explain, um, it was this really special environment at a really special time, I think. Um, so my role had evolved into this like heavily research-based role. And the question was, um, 
why why do Westerners hate their devices? Like, why do we hate our devices? And and why are we so tethered to a thing that we hate, right? And a lot of people know now, but it was very cutting edge to be talking about this at the time, that like, you take the best engineers in the world and you tell them that their success metric is how long can you get a person to be on this thing, right? Like engagement time. That was what everyone talked about at the time. This is engagement this time. is like straight out of the social experiment. Exactly, yeah, yeah right. Uh, people talked about engagement time and eyeballs. That's all people talked about at the time. Wow. That, those were your success metrics, right? And people were fighting. I remember like we would look at presentations where people were fighting over seconds of your time per day, right? Like if we could get five more seconds and we have a million users of this product, that's five million more seconds per day, right? Like, and and so that's that's what everyone was talking about when I started at Google, and uh, and then we start to see the numbers coming back that like people are deleting their apps, right? And they're getting flip phones and they're like doing all these crazy things that don't make any sense to us as we sit in Mountain View. And then we're like, man, you know what sounds good is like a flip phone. Like that'd be really nice. And then I wouldn't be responding to emails at 11 PM. So it starts to happen to us too. And, and, and you think about the fact that, um, that was the success metric and the best people in the world were building the tools, right? So like you end up with these devices where you yourself can't even mediate the time you spent on them, right? You're like, I don't know what just happened the last hour of my life or why or how, like, and I didn't like it. I feel terrible. Um, and so we wanted to do research because all we knew, the starting hypothesis was just that not everyone feels that way. Not everyone in the world hates their phone and like wants to throw it in the ocean. So let's go talk to the people who don't hate their phones and try to figure out what the hell the difference is. So that was the big piece of research at that time. Um, and I was uh, really, really lucky to get assigned to that. I was super excited about it. And so that's what I wanted to do was talk to the people uh, in India and in Kenya and try to understand, like, why don't you hate your phone? That's so crazy. I mean, so first off, yeah, the social experiment, the show and everything, Netflix, and, you know, there's there's different things that come out about these algorithms and these... Yeah, the um, social dilemma, that one. Social yeah, dilemma, yeah. that's what it is, yeah. not the social experiment. God, is that the always... one where it's like the same dopamine drop yes. as like a oh, slot yeah. machine? Yep, Yeah, absolutely. so like you just get tranced in the slot machine. That's and right. Basically, that's why everything feeds from up to down. So yep. you're having an opportunity to... To speak to somebody who helped create the thing that gives you your fix for the day because she's trying to figure out why it was you're not getting your fix and staying long enough. Uh, It's just like a super simple explanation, right? Like ultimately what we know is that a lot of these things do give you, I always speak in terms of utility, right? A lot of these things do give you, joy might be a strong word, but like pleasure in some sense in some amount right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe 20 minutes on social media in a day for you is, is pleasant. It's like, oh, this is what my family's up to. You know, this is a beautiful spot to travel, whatever it is you like to look at on social media. Uh, Man, Mentors for Mill is so cool. Look at their new interview. And then, and then somewhere shortly after that, for most people, it's around 15 to 30 minutes. um, You don't plateau with how much you're enjoying something. You actually tank for social media um, specifically. And, And so you can end up less happy than you started by spending too much time on there. And yet, we can't self-regulate. So, I was going to say, I hear that, but then what I see is that people <laughs> then search deeper. Yeah. So now Reels gives them an opportunity oh, yeah. or yeah. other ways of, okay, if I don't like this one, I can just keep swiping. Yep. Yeah. 
I feel old now because I I don't know. Like I'd love to talk to someone. I'd love to sit in someone's living room again and hear about TikTok, right? Because I'm not on TikTok and I don't. I'm like old now. I don't really get That's all pure that China. Stuff. We don't want to hear about that. Right, anymore. right, exactly. <laughs> um, and and they say that now the average attention span is 13 seconds. It was like someone just quoted that to me the other day, and I was like, I've heard that of uh, or that or less of the younger generation exactly. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I'm like, I don't even. What can I tell you in 13 seconds? I, did I even get that <laughs> no, question out? Yeah, exactly. Let me, let me, right. Go. And so I don't. I don't know how to, I don't know how to be a marketer in that environment. I don't know what you can tell someone in 13 seconds. Um, but I also don't know how to be a person in that environment, right? Like I, it, it, at the same time that so many people are moving to long form interviews and like much uh, deeper, slower, con- like um, contemplative, contemplative, I don't know where the emphasis in, is in that word, uh, experiences. We'll roll with it. Yeah, we'll just go with it. Um, deeply thoughtful experiences. Uh, then, you know, the, the younger generation is, is on their phones doing these like 13 second experiences. And I don't know how to even like begin to compare those two things. I, I don't either. I mean, I think um, social media at one point had for me, a certain purpose. I mean, it was, like you said, an opportunity to catch up with people you didn't have before or didn't see before. But there's also later on, you start looking back at it and you go, I mean, it's great that I caught up with John and, you know, I got, I went to college with him all those years ago, but I really don't care that he just vacationed in the Bahamas (laughs) and that, you know, and so then you're like, I can't delete him and I can't, you know, how to, so then you Google, how do I, you know, not, um, you know, let the person know that I'm basically not going to be following their stuff anymore. But it's so uh, interesting nowadays. Uh, you're right about being tethered. I tr- I tried a bit of an experiment. Mm. I wasn't a hundred percent successful going out on vacation and trying not to use this tool. Yeah, how'd you do? Um, fairly well, nice. I will say, uh, better than probably I had uh, hoped. But I wanted to see if it was this dopamine fix and if it's something that um, I feel like I have to have. And it's primarily because I reached a point in my life where I already felt like my my wife and I were just spending too much time. Sure. I mean, breakfast, you're sitting there having coffee and you look over and you're going, we can't even have a conversation because yeah. we're both spending yeah. too much time staring at the stupid screen. And it doesn't matter what platform it is. You could be on Google looking for something. You yep. could be on a social media app that's doing something. So I had already told my work, I'm like, um, both my peers, my boss and my subordinates, I am not going to, I'm going to intentionally like delete the app because I do not want to be on it. I did do that. Nice. Um, That was very nice. Social media, um, I had to do a post Uh for Mentors Military because it was over like a two week span. So I thought, well, I'll do at least one, maybe two. Uh, But what I did do is I did not log back in to see the response. Yep. Uh, because that's another thing you do, right? Absolutely. So um, it was very interesting, but what it also started helping me highlight is the amount of time I waste right here. You know, yeah. and it's like watching one of those movies and you go, I'll never get that 90 minutes back. <laughs> yeah. Right? It is. And even in the way that you talked about it just now, you can see um, how difficult, difficult it is for us to self-regulate, right? Like you weren't, you didn't say, 
um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have it with me on vacation, but I'm gonna make sure I don't use it for more than 20 minutes a day. You said like I had to delete the app and you know maniacally police mm-hmm. my usage, right? Because otherwise it's going to get away from me. And that's exactly what we were seeing at that time. Was it's from folks like you, Maylee. Yeah. You, so I have usage notifications on my apps. Nice, yep. And every time it says you've been on this app for an hour, I hit ignore for the day. Yeah. It's terrible. Like oh, it just gives man. me another thing to like, I, I'm did. supposed to not use it. But. That was one of my favorite pieces of research that I did at Google. Uh, <laughs> is that yeah. we, did a, we did a piece about how difficult, if let's, let's talk about like reminders on your apps for mm-hmm. how long, and everyone's like, oh yeah, let me know. Let me know how long I've been on this. Um, and then literally when I parsed the data, 50, 50 split between people who were like, how dare you make me snooze a notification about my usage time? Like, don't make me feel badly about my usage, even though like I turned this feature on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the other 50%, all of these like personalized messages being like, can you please make it harder? I just snooze it. I completely yep. ignore it. Can you give my wife the password and only she can re-unlock <laughs> YouTube that day? It was wild. Yeah. And so people are so... Addicted. They're, yeah, it's, but but it makes sense, right? Like no one should feel guilty. Like it's designed to be that way. And, and there's a change coming and like that is becoming different. Um, and I, I feel like poorly that the way that I spoke about the younger generation, I was just on a plane to Switzerland and there's an 18 year old kid sitting next to me who talked about um, deleting social media because um, he was like uh, struggling with an eating disorder because of all the the photos of, of young men who are so cut that he would see on social media all the time and how common that was in his friend group. And so I think there's this real element of like thoughtfulness coming uh, about how and why we use our technology the way that we do. And, and same thing in social dilemma, right? It's like starting that conversation. Um, but no matter how much we know about it, it's still really People hard to People are still regulate. gonna use that power for evil. That's, just, just, that's true too, yeah. You gotta trust the, the companies that you're using and, yeah. and that's a difficult thing today, so. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. I think that's a, some of our biggest challenges and I think um, today, it's interesting, you even watch shows. Um, I always find it fascinating to put myself asleep at times. Uh, forgive me, HDTV, but I watch you because uh, oh, it yeah. helps me go to sleep. Sure. So uh, I'll turn that on. There might be you know house hunters or something of that nature that it's out uh, on the, the television and you're finding more and more of these people who are using this as an opportunity to create revenue and, and allow them the freedom to travel too because then they can be a vlogger or mm-hmm. you know a socialite or whatever and they earn an income so now well now you've attracted a market in a very different way because now you want to now you've got people who want to use the app to be a celebrity yep. and then they have a following yep. so now you're getting the combo and so these people are allowed to live abroad. And it's always funny you watch these shows and they go, so, you know, Johnny and Susie are moving over to Scandinavia and Johnny it needs an office because she's a vlogger. Oh, and you know, just like it. And so yeah. then it's like, you know, what kind of price point are you guys looking at? Uh, 1.4 yep. million. I'm <laughs> like, what say. the? 1.4 yeah. million yeah. dollars? I collect butterflies and she's a stay-at-home mom. Right. Right. <laughs> a budget of $2 million. Feels like it. Yep. Yep. It's it is. crazy. But that is, you know, this is the thing I think for me about technology and it's what we saw in the research too is like the reason the real reason that we're tethered to our devices is because they're incredibly helpful right like they're so freaking useful says the person from Google hey man I no longer receive anything from Google Um, all the cool like everything that you can search the the ease with which you can uh, gain information or contact your loved ones you know my cell phone was like literally my 
lifeline in the terrorist attack, for example. Um, so directions, everything, right? Like they're so incredibly useful um, that there are always two sides to the coin, right? Like now for me today, not a big social media person, um, never really have been. Uh, but I have this social media account so that people who've read my book can reach out to me. And it has been one of the most impactful, uh, personal feeling, meaningful experiences of my life. These messages that I get on Instagram from total strangers who like otherwise wouldn't be able to contact me. Or like maybe you could leave a review of my book, but you wouldn't be able to contact me and have a conversation. And so... It, they're always like two sides to, to the coin. And, and that's why it's hard when we're like, okay, I'm done with this thing. I'm throwing it in the ocean. Yeah. Like there is some redemption. So is the DM like the new handwritten note? It feels like it. You know what I mean? It like, really does feel like, like that. You receive a handwritten, like my mother-in-law, she's the queen of thank you notes, right? That's the best. Yeah. So it's always really nice when you get a thank you note. But now like my son's growing up, is the DM going to be that way? Like with some special emphasis on something? Yeah. I think, uh, depending on where you are in your life, yeah. DMs can probably serve really different purposes. <laughs> they can be really good or really bad, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, for me, yes, I think that's exactly yeah. the right way to put it. It's been like getting handwritten notes from like people all over the world. And, and I was just saying to my husband a couple nights ago that it's crazy to think that, uh, that one of the loneliest experiences of my life has turned into one of the most like profoundly meaningful and, and, and it, it drives so much connection in my life today. Like that it's, it's such a night and day, um, thing. And, and in, in a similar way is like two sides of the same thing, the, the darkest, hardest thing that's ever happened to me. And, and like now the most fulfilled and connected I've probably ever felt in my life. Right. Like it's so crazy. Uh, and I want to, that was a great transition into oh. the book. Thank you. Um, because I think what is interesting about this is that you're sharing a story that obviously had a major impact on your life. Um, and it still obviously has an impact today, but having to revisit it in these types of formats and, and uh, through the book, and which, of course, puts you in the limelight and puts you out there where you have to talk about it, you know, I'm sure is going to be challenging or is challenging as well. Because, I mean, you know, in, in say, even Kyle's situation, it's not that somebody constantly asks him about it. <laughs> Only those of us who are familiar with it are we yeah. going to ever bring in anything like that yeah. up, you know? I think, yeah, I think that for me, and it's not like this for everyone, and, and, and I, I'm not trying to say it should be. Um, but for me, I feel like I get to talk about it. Like I still feel so surprised every time someone reaches out to me and is like, do you want to talk on this or that platform or give, give a talk or, you know, come to this event? Um, because the truth of the matter is everybody has a story, right? Like everybody has something that would be difficult for other people to comprehend, like how they went through that, right? Very nearly everybody. And if you don't have one, like lucky you, but basically everybody has one of those difficult stories in their lives. And like those people aren't getting messages on Instagram. They're not getting reached out and asked to, to come to this event. And, and so like, for me, it's been this incredibly humbling and healing thing, right? Every time I tell this story, I'm doing a little bit more prolonged exposure therapy, right? Every time I talk to somebody, I'm processing this event more. And what's more healing is that every time I tell this story, at least one person reaches out to me and, and they say something like, that's exactly how I felt. 
I, like I've never been able to put my experience in words, but listening to you recount your journey, it's mine. Like those are my words. Like yeah. you, you gave them to me and there's like nothing more meaningful than that for me. It's so interesting that you say that because that's one of the things that keeps us going doing the Mentors Military yeah. podcast is having guys and gals on here that have uh, experiences that they share with others and they don't realize that impact. But then um, I wouldn't say they don't realize it before coming on. They realize it afterwards because once yes. they share it, not only is it cathartic for them, but then they get these messages from individuals that said, you know, I listened to your story and I mean, I was, I was about to take my own life. Yeah. I was at that point at the bottom of the bottom and I realized what you went through and, and it helped me. And so that to me, um, it's one of the reasons why it keeps us going here at Mentors from Military, obviously, but I can, I can sense from you, it's the passion and the purpose that you are driven on now, just yeah. based on uh, your experiences. So you're in Kenya yeah. and, um, at this time frame, and you're doing this job with Google and such. And um, you um, left the meeting. I think you were going to have another one later, if I remember correctly. And you decided to go back to the ho uh, hotel room, just take a little nap. Yeah, I never regretted a nap so much in my life. I never got my nap either. No, also, you didn't. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you didn't sleep uh, for about 18 hours that's or right. longer. Yeah, yeah. Long, long yeah longer than that. that. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I was. Um, th this research that I was talking about, uh, I would go and sit in people's homes. And, and that's what we were doing in Kenya as well. Um, and so I was supposed to go to the next uh, one of those in the series. I was only slated to be in Kenya for two and a half days. That always cracks people up. So I was like literally from there, I, I was coming from India where I'd been for a week, uh, two and a half days in Kenya, then to South Africa, then Canada, then finally back. Um, so it was like a blip in my trip. If I, if I lay out that timeline of what you just said, <laughs> does that mean too that the flight that you were scheduled on to go home was basically this fight you stay, you stayed on? Yes. No way. Exactly. Wow. Yes. I didn't actually end up on the exact flight because they changed it and changed it again and changed it back. Well, I knew you changed it or you got an upgrade change yeah. or whatever that modified. <laughs> yes. But I was supposed to go to South Africa at almost the exact time that I ended up flying home after the terrorist attack. Oh so, my God. Yeah. Wow. That yes. is crazy. That that is crazy. Um, yeah, you know, if I just hung on, hung in there and stuck with my agenda, like would have been fine. Um, yes. Just so I was supposed continue to go on to so. South Africa after all that. <laughs> Actually, at first, that really was my plan. I was like, when we still thought it was a bank robbery. Um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, but I was like, yeah, that's we're cool. I'll just uh, head to South Africa. But by the end, I was like, you know, I think I'll go home. Uh, so I, I uh, asked my driver, I was going to be late, actually, it was truly the thing. Um, and if what's funny is that if you know me, uh, I'm rarely late. And like, if I'm late, I'm late by five minutes and I'm profusely apologetic. Um, like I texted you today because I was like, I'll be four minutes after the time that I told you. Um, and uh, and I was going to be an hour and a half late to, to, to a two hour meeting because that's what traffic is like in Nairobi. And I just like absolutely failed to understand the amount of traffic and and um, the maps apps have difficulty estimating that correctly in Nairobi and so I was like <laughs> I, I can't literally walk in in the middle I mean three quarters of the way through this interview in someone's living room and be like hey I'm Maylee like let's start over <laughs> um it's like it's fine you know I've been up forever I've been up for like 12 hours already. Uh, so I'll go lie down for a little bit and I'll meet back up. We were working with an external research agency. Um, when I say we, I mean, I, I was the only Googler there. Um, I was like, I'll meet back up with them. They can summarize what happened uh, over dinner and then I'll get out of here in the morning. 
And that was my whole... Bada bing, bada boom, that easy. No problem. I still haven't finished that meeting today. (laughs) (laughs) So you go into your hotel room with the idea and intent of uh, taking a nap. And, you know, you describe how you decide to relax and, (laughs) you know, and and get comfortable in the whole bed. and, And then that's basically... When the shit went down. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's hard for people to fathom um, how n- naively I walked into that scenario. And like, if you could see these things unfold visually, I mean, <laughs> there are metal detectors out front, right? And like staff, and they wear these like hats. And I would always stop and chat with them. And I'm Midwestern, right? So I like have to talk to everyone. It's like go through the metal detector. I greet the staff at the front. I wave to the front desk. You know, and I'm in this beautiful like five star hotel and and I and I I just didn't know I just didn't know I didn't know the context of, of of the place where I was and 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 I walked around with a very like I'm immortal thought process because that was all I ever knew yeah. right and and I was there like I'm on a business trip for Google in a five-star hotel like I remember saying to my family oh my god like what's the worst thing that happens I get mugged they take my work laptop like we're fine you guys relax um and i go up the elevator and i pop into my room and i pack all my things and i lie down for a nap and uh that was when and i i kid you not like literally my head hits the pillow in this big like beautiful fluffy white bed in my five-star hotel room um and i have this uh like huge window uh along like if it were in this room it's like a good basically the whole wall. wall. Yeah, yeah, basically the whole wall is this massive window that looks out onto the courtyard. And so I have the curtains shut. And uh, from that direction, like very clearly, um, the suicide bomber detonated. And and I didn't know that it was a suicide bomber at, at that point, though I did put it together very quickly. Um, what I knew, I think like even before the thought had words wrapped around it for me, um, was that like things just got unfathomably bad, like unfathomably bad. Um, and then to be in that situation with uh, no real understanding of the context that you're in and no training, right? Like, uh, yeah, what okay. do you do next? What yeah. was your first instinct? My first instinct was to, to look. Like, okay. look at what happened. Um, I think just because my brain was trying so just hard. trying to develop the situation. Yeah, but see, is that so hilarious? I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, no, maybe, please. But uh, there was a drive-by. There was a shooting that happened in my neighborhood, not mm-hmm. the one I'm in now, but two or so neighborhoods before that. And and uh, you may recall, um, I've known Kyle for like 20 years. We were talking about that earlier. But at any rate, um, shooting. So... We're, we're in bed. It's like one o'clock in the morning or something. And the first thing I do is roll out of my bed onto the floor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Smart. My wife and my daughter, who yeah. you know. Stands up. No, my wife gets out of the bed and meets my daughter. And they're both running down the stairs to go to the dining room window, which faces the road that everybody's driving by now with the weapons yep. as they're going by and everything and, and, and exiting from the scene and such from. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's funny that you say the first thing you wanted to do was assess the situation and look out the window, which is probably not a great idea. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible idea. You Objectively. want to find a covered and concealed position. Exactly. Yeah. Like, exactly. Oh, was really Peek smart. out the window yeah. Yeah. From, from a concealed yes. position. Oh, my God. Exactly. And I literally, like, <laughs> 
yeah, I probably couldn't have gotten any more antithetical to what someone would train you to do. Like I also, you said peek out the window. Yeah. I was like wrenched the curtains open. Yeah. Like what is happening? Um, let me just stand here and get my bearings for a moment. Um, and then, and then, you know, as a, as a civilian and as a, a 26 year old woman from Ohio, um, I couldn't get my bearings. Like I literally couldn't process what I was looking at. Things in slow motion at this point. Yep. When I play that memory back, it's very slow. Um, later I put together the timeline, like how long had it literally been based on the time the bomb went off and the time I started sending text messages. And it was like two minutes or something obscenely short. Um, but I would have told you that I stood there for like 15 minutes, like just glued eyes on the scene. Um, to to this like devastating um, uh, picture that I can only say, like the only thing my brain could tell me was like, you're looking at a movie. This was the only familiarity I had with anything mm-hmm. that could possibly look People like People running around at this point mm-hmm. and screaming, you hear anything at this point? No, or you, are I you... didn't hear any screaming. Um, I can see smoke rolling through the courtyard. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I kept staring at that like, I still see, you know, in my head is this leg, this severed leg, um, with a, with a, a shoe, like a boot still on it. And I'm like, it's a prop. Like it's, it's a prop, like it's a movie. So it's like not, it's not really someone's leg. And I can't like, my brain knows it's not processing correctly. And I really recognize that like, I'm going to have to start figuring out what is going on and responding somehow. Um, so like, it's a leg and it's it's certainly not a prop. And and I remember the first thought of like, that was very recently attached to a human being. And that was when I was like, oh my God, we're gonna die. That Like that was just, that was the end. When my brain finally processed something, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't nuanced is my point. It wasn't like, oh, perhaps this is an attack and I should look for a concealed position. It was literally like, now this this is the court uh, courtyard of the hotel. Yeah. So it's in the compound of the hotel where it went off. Yeah, yeah. So just to kind of give people context. It's not like it's a road out front or yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, people get a bit confused about this. Um, the Riverside Complex in Nairobi uh, is made up of the Ducid D2 Hotel, which I think is now defunct. Um, which makes sense, uh, and and many many businesses, so uh, office buildings as well as like jewelers and um, a, a bank and uh, and a, a small restaurant uh, called the Secret Garden, and that was where the Secret Garden sort of borders the courtyard at the back of the Ducet D2, and uh, that was where the suicide bomber detonated his vest um, around 3 p.m. local time that day, 3:30 I think. So, yeah, and and the funny thing, or I mean, not funny, right? Like. None of this is funny. I never mean to imply that it's funny. Um, sort of one of the crazy things about that is that I uh, I wasn't supposed to be in that hotel. I had booked a different hotel. Um, and I was told uh, when I reached out to the global security team that the hotel I booked didn't have enough setback from the road. And so they wanted me to be in this one that had this whole like complex. Well, the complex ended up making a great target because you can trap people inside of the complex and execute them. So. Yeah, a crazy, crazy situation that I had no, no like bearing to assess. I just had no idea what to do or, yeah. or what to think. So you had two phones. You had your yeah. work phone and your personal phone, which a lot of people do because they want to separate work from pleasure. That's right. I was and trying to walk the walk and like be my own master of my technology. I was terrible. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
you, you wanted double dopamine. Exactly. One wasn't enough. <laughs> Two at once, yeah. Yeah. So at this time frame, um, I mean, you're trying to assess the situation, but I think also at one point you started realizing something's not right here. And um, wasn't it that, and I'm trying to remember yeah. uh, the book, um, obviously this is your life, but I'm only trying to remember the pieces of it. But um, you actually thought, uh, just based on some of the stuff that was going on, that it um, not only that it was a bank robbery or t- type of thing, because that's what you were being told yeah. when you talk with somebody, but it was that I thought there were some people that were, there was movement of other people out there or something, if I'm remembering cor- uh, correctly or remembering. Yeah, so when I was standing there, um, I saw the gunman walking. That's what it was. Yeah, and they had AK-47s. And, and it's, you know, you hear these stories about people who um, experience life-threatening events and, and there's a, there's a lot more thought that you can wrap around the intuition you have after the fact, right? You live through it and then you go like, why, why did I have that reaction to that visual? And then you start to think about it and you're like, oh, because of this. So I didn't realize it at the time, but when I saw them, I like shut my curtains as fast as I could and, um, went and got my phones and texted my family goodbye. Um, but after the fact, I realized that it didn't make any sense. Their behavior didn't make any sense if they were victims in whatever had just happened. Um, you only walk slowly through like the blood splatter and step over a leg um, with an AK-47 if you knew it was happening and you're coming into the complex to like add to the terror because otherwise you'd be fleeing and probably wouldn't have an AK-47. Um, so like I didn't know why at the time it caused that response, but yeah, when I saw them, I like wrenched my curtains shut, and and that was the wow, like this we're gonna die. And these are mask guys or not? No, they didn't have masks. Uh, that was the interesting part, you know, yeah. that I thought because well, I say interesting because you you know you you have a vision. I think of mm. people have that vision of when they see a terrorist, you know, it's a you know, a veil that you can't see or whatever. Mm. One of the things you mentioned is that um, I think you actually called out the fact that they didn't, that you can see plainly their face. They're not trying to hide it. They're actually wanting to create the fear. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, there's a certain amount of notoriety with that. Right. And, and putting your face all over this, uh, I don't know, like a horror um, because if that's your goal to like perpetrate fear and and you're doing that very effectively then i guess you want to put your face all over it yeah how many did you see before you closed i saw two gunmen coming that way um and what i realized later what the fbi was able to explain to me later uh was that they had come in together uh the suicide bomber was like the beginning of the event and then uh, they split up so that they could like box people in from both directions Mm. it's a complex ambush Sure. Essentially. Yeah. That. <laughs> you didn't know what that was yeah, at the time. I did not. It's a complex thing. Now in the next podcast, you can always say, and actually it was a complex. Actually, uh, yeah. Uh, the first thing I did was assess the situation. Yeah. I realized it was a complex ambush. There you go. No, but man, some training would have been nice, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And so you're texting home and you said goodbye. Yeah. I said, uh, there's a terrorist attack on the hotel. Uh, I love you. And I was like, I, I mean, the thought was literally... You have 13 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> what words can you can you send uh, to your loved ones? And the thing that the thing that will still get me choked up today that that's a, a bit more difficult for me to talk about is that I really did register the thought that um, it would be. And I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying it's what I thought at the time 
that it would be selfish to tell them that I was afraid, right? I was so sure that I was going to die, like 100% certain. Um, why then leave their last memory of me as like me cowering in my room, right? Like, and, and what does it accomplish? What are they gonna say to me that's gonna make me less afraid, right? Nothing, there's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that I can do. Um, so like all I could think was what's the very last thought I want them to have in their heads when they picture the way that I was murdered. Like, yeah. So. What floor was this? I was on the third floor, um, but it's the floors are numbered like they are in England. So there's yeah. like a zero and then one, two, three. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so I think it was you started texting. Well, you texted your family. And I'm sorry, Amelia, I don't remember exactly course of events, but I, I know that you started, um, you got into the bathroom and you were on the bathroom floor. And I think it was Paul who actually said um, that you should contact Google. Was it him or was it you decided to do that? That was me, actually. Um, when I had been uh, going to China, uh, we were given this like internationally available uh, emergency number. And I knew that you could call it from any country in the world. And they have a team then. Oh, yeah. Uh, Google has like and people always ask me this. But yeah, Google actually has a team of folks. Um, so like the person I was speaking with was sitting in Mountain View. I like met her for lunch later. Um, I was going to ask you that later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's awesome. Um, and, uh, and so I, I got connected with her and, uh, and she was the one who started giving me these like concrete things to do. I, I was literally still standing in my hotel room, just being like, uh, uh how long until they knock my door down? How, how was she getting the events? Are uh, connected with agencies and stuff to get that or is it through TV and you um, know later she was connected my understanding so I apologize if I'm misquoting this is that a lot of the information early on came from Twitter um, and it was the same for my family so there were so many updates and people were sharing that. photos yeah. and videos yeah. um, that that was like one of the places that you could get information in real time but at the same time like that means it's not always correct right because everyone's sort of guessing and and some people are even like trying to mislead you or clickbait or whatever so um you got to kind of take everything on twitter with a grain of salt which is actually why i never went on twitter i mean also because i don't think i even have a twitter but um i didn't i didn't want to like overwhelm myself with people's theories and like guesses as to what was happening yeah it's so interesting that you say it that way because <clears throat> I think a lot of people probably would go there because they would want that instant message to realize from different angles what people are posting so yeah. I can get a, a 100% you know, layout of what's, a, what's happening. I think that if I had any percentage belief in my survival, I might have done that. Yeah. But I was just, I was just so convinced. It's so hard for me to put into words. I was just so convinced that I was dead. It was literally just when to me, not if, but just when. Um, because why would I not be dead? Like how, in, in what version of this scenario um, where you don't end up with like a super trooper from the UK coming to save you, um, what version of that do we not die, right? What version of that doesn't last for days? What version of that doesn't become Westgate Mall, right? Like yeah. it does, period. That's what's going to happen. Um, and, and so it was like, it, it would have felt, I think, so fruitless to me. Why in my last moments do I care what people are theorizing on Twitter, right? Like, I'm going to sit here and see if, if, you know, my husband, who was my fiance at the time, sees my message and responds, right? Like, yeah. 
So yeah, you started communicating not only with Paul, your now husband, yeah. that, that was your fiance at the time frame, and you couldn't wait to get back. And <laughs> you talk about that, and I can't can't imagine. But yeah. um, also with both of your parents, but you didn't want to bring your brother into the conversation, and yet it was one of these uh, chats to where you had both. It, I think initially it was individually, yep. and and then they got into a group type of chat and yep. everything where you can communicate. And between them, you communicating with them, and then you communicating with external uh, forces and stuff yep. is where um, I think you contacted the embassy. He encouraged you to contact yep. the embassy, and you spoke to a Marine who just yep. probably wasn't willing to give you a whole lot of information <laughs> or the time of day for that matter. He's very efficient, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he basically just said, chill. Yes. The cavalry is coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think that his goal at that time was to figure out if they had eyes and ears on all the Americans in the hotel or if they were missing anyone or was there anyone they didn't know about yet. Um, and, of course, we, we knew that we did have one American casualty already at that point from, from the initial blast. Um, and so I think, like, and these are not his words. He was, he was um, brisk, but he was certainly not unkind or anything. But I think he probably would have said, like, look, I don't have time to sit on the phone and, like, hold your hand. Coach you through this. Yeah, yeah. man, like, stay where you are. Uh, do you know of any other Americans in the hotel? Um, and so I was, like, racking my brain. Uh, just I remember thinking, like, did I overhear American accents at dinner last night? Anything that I could think of. Um, and I couldn't. And then I was like, God, I'm also useless in addition to being, like, terrified. Uh, so I, I couldn't really help. And he was like, all right, hang in there. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> So the the Google team were actually the team that you communicated a lot with that yep. was feeding the information and stayed on the phone with you through some of the, the stuff that's going on. And at this time frame, what time is this now? Well, uh, let's say, well, say now, I mean, it happened at 3.30. Yep. So what time did it get dark? It got dark. I mean, I, gosh, I don't know exactly what time, probably around like 7 or 8 that night. Um, I, remember, I remember it being dark, and I remember it being dark for a long time, as nights are. Um, and there was something so um, viscerally frightening about it getting dark. I don't know why that is. There's something about like did they kill the power or anything? No, actually, okay. I had I had power and I had um, internet the whole time, which was like really critical, I think, to right. my ability to um, not run screaming from my room, which was really important. Um, but uh, I did have all my power out in my room because. Um, because I was supposed to like not indicate that there was a person inside. So if your lights are on, then like clearly you're in there. And that's one of those hotels too, where you slip a key card into the uh, slot just inside your door to activate the power in your room, right? Oh yeah, okay. Okay, well this is a thing that was said to me years after the terrorist attack that now I still think about, um, that in one of these attacks, not mine, they went behind the front desk computer and pulled up the sheet that shows you who has their slots, their keys in their slot. Mm. Oh, and because you chose, you didn't do that when you walked in. I did actually, I did, and then I physically turned my lights off at the switch. But now I would absolutely remove the key card. But I didn't know, right? Like just the things you don't know, the things. Wait, you don't but consider. did you put that in the book? Because no, I don't know if I remember that. No, this was said to me. I was at a security conference literally in March of of this year, and and someone was saying that to me, and I was like. Oh my God, I never. So that, that's how they knew. Not in my attack. In a, she was saying oh, in a different, in a different attack. attack, that's what they did. And so, you know, did, did someone tell you to take your, your key card out of the electricity slot? And I was like, no. I never would have thought of that either. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I would I guess just. It's a way for a hotel to manifest in case there is an emergency, like yeah. a fire or mm-hmm. something. Right. We have this block of rooms sure. that are all showing. 
Got to make sure we get them in. out. Yeah. Yep. They've had people fake um, local accents, right? Like come to the door and speak in an American accent, know your name, and like at all of these, you know, different different events, um, tragic events like this. And so, in the aftermath, I've learned all of these, you know, things to to think about. Um, that yeah, never would have occurred to me in a million years at that time. So. How how high was the hotel that you were in? You said third floor is where you were, but how high? I'm pretty sure the top floor was seven. <clears throat> okay, uh, which was where the gym was located. So like, if you rode the elevator to the seventh floor, the doors literally opened into the gym. There weren't rooms on that floor that I know. And of. you may have said third floor. I couldn't. I was trying to like in my mind as reading the book a mm. picture. You know, hey, you start painting the movie and when you're reading the book. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know why I thought you might be a little bit higher up and the hotel being more like a 15 floor. 24 mm -hmm. type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in reading this whole thing, you know, now that you know it's a third floor and you look out a window yeah, and you see exactly. an event happen, yep. you're a little close to the action Real and you automatically feel like if somebody's rushing into the building, three floors is, exactly. is pretty close. Yeah. yeah. And I knew right from the conversation with my driver that morning, I knew that Westerners were the target, right? Like that's what makes headlines. Um, and so uh, suddenly I'm like a high value target in this situation. Um, and that was part of it. I was like, if they have any idea who I am or where I am or, you know, uh, what my background is or whatever, right? Like, you know, Google employee murdered by Al-Shabaab. Yeah. That's a headline, right? Um, and so that was part of why I was so sure that they were coming for me, right? Yeah. So. When you put it that way, yeah, I can totally see your brain at that time frame trying to process everything that's going on and yeah. and probably not wanting to give up as much as information like that to your family, yeah. oh, but yeah. processing it internally and realizing, wow, this is this is real. Yeah. And, and when you were talking to Google, they were telling you that you said bank robber, and of course we found out link later on it's not a bank robber, yeah. but... Um, they had told you bank robbery because that was the information that was coming in off of Twitter saying, oh, it's a bank robbery, yep. um, basically telling you it's under control, you know, it's not going to be as bad as you think it is yeah. and the whole bit. Were you gaining peace of mind at that point? Or did you feel like I'll get peace of mind when I know for sure it's a bank robbery and everything's buttoned up? I think that it was more like a, like a, a schism in my brain. Like, I think that in all reality, I knew it wasn't a bank robbery um, because in what world did the things that I had just seen. You don't normally blow up somebody yeah. in the corner. I mean, yeah, bank robberies don't robbery. usually use yeah. asbestos. That's yeah. right. Exactly. And, I, and my dad actually texted me that exact sentiment later. Sorry. Um, uh, and so I think like if you had really asked me, um, you know, like, walk me through this bank robbery, like explain to me how you think this is going down. Um, I probably very quickly would have said, you know, that that doesn't make sense. Um, but I really, really wanted it to be a bank robbery, like really, really bad. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, there was a bank. I saw it. Um, you know, people steal from banks. There's jewelry stores down there you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, like they might use a bomb somewhere <laughs> in that process. Um, and I, so it was like more, I could feel the almost less rational part of my brain trying to convince me that it was true. Um, and, and I remember the thought I remember really specifically was, um, think about how much we've limited the danger. Oh my God, this is such great news. At this point, if I die, it's like a stray bullet freak accident thing because they're in like a shootout with the cops or whatever. Anyway, um, 
but that that was the thought that I was like trying so hard to to digest and to believe was like the danger has lessened immensely um while hearing ongoing gunshots and 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 grenades and so at some point um I guess when it's dark you knock over a glass <sighs> yeah it, it, it breaks up in the uh, the floor of the bathroom yeah man there are these moments right in 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 these this is a life experience that even for me, when I watch it back in my head, it watches like this movie. Like I could never have made up something like this um, and written this as, as like a fictional book. Um, but that moment, living that moment was so bizarre because it, like being a klutz and trying to survive the worst thing you've ever experienced, like don't feel like they could go hand in hand in any world. Like when are you fighting for your survival and you like, trip, right? You don't see that in the movies. No one's like, oh, yeah. and then I fell down and whatever. Um, and so it was this moment that like, it felt so surreal to me because there was something so familiar in like knocking over a glass bottle and breaking it. Cause like, if you know me, you know, I'm kind of klutzy. And, and for that to happen in this extraordinary, unreal, incredibly dangerous, traumatizing, context that was so unfamiliar. It, it was so wild. So I was, I just turned too quickly and I had a big glass bottle on the floor and my backpack hit. I had my backpack on my like go bag or whatever, like I'm ready to get out of here. Um, I had it on for hours and hours and hours. And I turned and the, didn't, I didn't compensate for the extra sort of size of the bag and knocked the glass bottle over and it shattered across the shower floor. And, uh, and I remember thinking, I just forfeited my life. Like I, I can't, I cannot freaking believe that. <laughs> it's okay. You can say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, not one curse word occurred to me. Uh, you know, I know there's letter. a bunch of them in yeah, here. Exactly. So um, you've been very good. Uh, I remember when I, when I let my grandmother read it for the first time, I said, you know, you have to understand there's going to be some gratuitous uh, language in here um, that you might not be stoked about. And she said, honey, if ever there was a time. So it's really cute. Like that's, that's how she Thanks, said it. Thanks, Grandma. Exactly. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the bathroom and I knock this bottle over and it shatters everywhere. And the first thought is you alerted them to your position. Yeah, absolutely. So like you're dead. Um, dummy, right? Is like literally, I can't believe I did this. Um, and then I, I start this like mental scramble. So, okay, I've been, you know, on the fence of, of dying here for several hours and, and pretty convinced that it's not going to go my way. Um, and so I've, I've made peace with the fact, or like as much as you, I've accepted the fact that I'm gonna die here. So now I've alerted them to my position. So I have what, seconds before they get to my door, I figure. Um, and, I, and I knew they were close cause they had come up the stairs and they had shot out the windows and I could hear them outside my room um, not long before this. And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, all I know from these news stories about terrorism is that, um, a lot of times they make videos, right? They'll take Westerners mm. and behead them on video. And I am a very stubborn person and I am a very, um, you know, I'm competitive in a certain way. And I was like, that is something I will not allow my family to experience. Like, I'm just not like, look, I'm dead either way. So no way are they gonna make this video of me that's gonna go out to my family. And so I, I picked up a, a shard of the glass and I thought, this is the closest thing I have to a weapon in this room or could have to a weapon. 
and it's probably like not gonna take out a terrorist. I'm not like a ninja star thrower. Um, but if I slash my wrists, they can't take me. They can't make a video of me. I'll be dead already. And like, and I took that from them. Like they didn't get to kill me. They didn't get to like revel in my death. It doesn't go on their score sheet. Like I did it. And so I remember sitting there with that piece of glass and going like, all right, the moment I hear I'm coming through the door, I'll just slash my wrists. And like, I remember thinking, I don't know how quickly you die from that, but I hope I'm like dead before they get to me. And I hope there's like, I hope it takes something away from them. Wow. Ailey, I mean, I, I mentioned that for that very reason, because I know that you kind of went there yeah. and for those reasons and you know, that's, uh, that's when you know that you're not just processing, but you're also trying to think, um, you know, again, about your family, the situation, how you're going to deal with it and control it rather than giving them the control. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like that was, that was what I was living those moments for was like, what can I still do for the people that I love? And there wasn't a lot that I could do. Right. And, and, and that was so tough. I remember even thinking about the woman on the phone from Google. I remember being like, dude, how is she going to deal with the fact that she heard me die over the phone? Like that's going to mess her up for the rest of her life. And, and, and obviously far more acutely for my family, um, thinking about what this would do to them and how guilty I felt about what it would do to them. And, and how, if I had just like known a little more about my surroundings and about the context you know i didn't need to be there and i didn't need to put everybody through this and and so those were the questions on my mind almost subconsciously at that time is like how to minimize the pain as much as i possibly can for them you also at one time started speaking to the kenyan special forces yeah, yeah. yeah peter <laughs> yeah peter that's right yep. so peter wasn't very well informed um yeah as, yeah. as to what was going on, similar to the bank, it's just a bank robbery. He was basically saying, Psh, oh, no big deal. This is going to be over in just a matter of moments. Uh, special forces are coming there. You're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it was always this message about extraction, right? It, there were so many people uh, throughout the experience who said, like, such and such a group is on their way to your door to get you. And I remember that being sort of the experience with Kenyan special forces was like, oh, like, they're there. They're extracting people. They'll be at your door any minute. Do you hear the boots outside? And I was like, really not. <laughs> I, do, I do not, sir. Um, so it was that, it was just part of the, the sort of infinite storm of, of misinformation at the time. And, and, you know, it's hard. Like, again, this is, is unfolding in real time and people's lives are at stake. And, and, and it's very difficult to have any, like, coherence to the messaging that's happening. Um, but that's also, it, it really takes a toll on, on the victims because you think you're getting saved and then you think you're not getting saved and then you think you're going to die. And then you think maybe you should slit your own wrists and then you think you're getting saved. And so it's, a, it's a very uh, mentally taxing cycle to live, but at the same time, you're incredibly grateful. And I don't mean to say that I wasn't like every person who talked to me on the phone was in some way involved in trying to alleviate the situation. And so like, I'm not sitting there being like, um, actually that's not what's, you know, it's like, I so appreciate your effort. Um, I don't hear anyone outside. So like, let me know when you have another update maybe. Yeah. But you were getting the, I guess the sad part about this thing is you were trying to stay off social media so that you wouldn't get these updates yet. The people that were informing you weren't necessarily because they were following it or yeah. in the case of, I don't understand the SF guy and where that came from, you know, I'm giving really crazy information, but getting bad information, in that 
format was probably, in my opinion, almost worse. I'd probably yeah. look at Twitter and feed and go, that's probably a different angle. I don't know why this person is making that statement. Don't jump to conclusions. Sure. But when I'm listening to people who should know what's going on and they're feeding me information that's not correct, then... Like you could tell it was bad information when they were telling you? No. But, that's, well, that's I mean, if you're thing. laying there and you're supposed to hear boots yeah, out front... That's the thing. Like, <laughs> that, I was like, there's no one here. Um, yeah, and it, so much so that I even thought like maybe they had the wrong room number. Um, but... Uh, Again, the the rational part of my brain was so diminished at that point. I was so frightened and I was so exhausted um, that it was more just again and again and again this idea where I was trying to talk myself into believing it, right? Like, okay, it's a bank robbery. Just like, don't think about it very hard. Like, okay, they're outside my door, even though I don't hear anything and I don't see anyone and you told me this three times before now, but like this time for sure, bro, like they're here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you just, you want to believe it so badly. Um, I do think that like, Ultimately, I probably wouldn't wish that on anyone. If someone could have told me, which no one could at the beginning, like 17 hours from this moment, someone's gonna come save you. Um, I would have much rather just known that and known to like settle in. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was tough to, to, to start having that feeling of like, maybe I'll see my family again. Nope, maybe instead I should take my own life. You know, that, that cycle is um, taxing for sure. You didn't want the Kenya Special Forces. You actually wanted the uh, U.S. Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6, to come in and rescue you. I started going down this whole path of how great that would be. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you were imagining this TV moment like you're describing. You know, it wasn't about it wasn't about sort of the, the look of it or, or the prestige or anything like that. It was about the feel. It was I, I wanted so badly to feel safe again. And I just talked to Jessica Buchanan last week. She's so lovely. And she was rescued by SEAL Team 6. And... I knew that story a little bit at the time and it was like that moment that I wanted. I want these, I wanted these guys who are like good hair gel, good looking yeah, abs. Like for, for mostly that. Yeah. was what I really needed in that moment. Um, no, I wanted these like guys that seemed unkillable to come surround me and, and, and get me out of there. And, and I wanted them, I think, because it felt like such an impossible task. I yeah. was like, who can save hundreds of people on the other side of the world from this kind of terror? And, you know, to me, like, I had no knowledge of the military. I had no knowledge of, of, of these communities at that time. So it was like the only reference, almost a pop culture reference to me, right? I was like, I don't know, Navy SEALs, like they can save you, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so it was like more this idea of like, if they show up, um, I think I get to live. Like, I think that's actually what happens if the Navy SEALs show up. But you're giving yourself confidence at that point, too. Or, or you're, you're painting a picture that's different than maybe what's going on around you. So um, I don't know if you got too much into it because I can't remember around yeah. the feeling that that gave you. But it certainly read like you were getting, oh, this is this could actually happen. And then I could. And you so that I'm sure gave you, at least for a short time frame, you forgot about what's going on, give you the confidence and that you're going to get rescued. I don't know that you ever forget, right? Like, okay. Because Fair the enough. sounds never stop. Like yeah. there were always gunshots. There were always explosions happening. So I don't know that I forgot um, per se, but but I it was my it was my husband really, and I, I don't write about this in the book, but my husband is this like um, <laughs> wonderful, very literal black and white thinker. Like 
and and we have a rule, you know, that like we don't lie to each other. And, you know, I was testing that rule, I guess. And I remember at some point asking him the percentage chance that I would live. Like, what do you think truly level with me is the percentage chance that I walk out of here? And, and he summarized it having to do with now that we know that the U.S. Special Forces are there, um, and we knew that U.S. and U.K. Special Forces were on the ground. That's what we had been told. He gave me like a 70 percent chance or something like that. And I was like, that's really good. You know, I thought I had like a 0% chance for a long time. And like, if Paul says 70% chance, like he means it, like I have more than a 50, 50 shot of getting out of here. And that was the, the comfort. It was really Paul that knew, um, how drastically the situation had shifted given that those guys were there. So when you get back, you certainly asked Paul, Paul was a 70 real Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he said, yeah, he said, yeah, okay. he, he said it didn't even occur to him to inflate the number falsely. Because like me, I would have been like 100 percent, babe. Like, of course, you're going to make it out. I love you. Don't stress. You're going to be fine. Um, just the way he responded, uh, the way you just said it that way yep. is like very analytical person. Yes. Um, yeah. Paul is Paul, I'm sure, <laughs> um, has a, a calculation somewhere that he wrote out, you know, that that he's like, well, given the U.S. UK special forces, <laughs> but then you consider the number Carry of the terrorists and their location. The yeah, exactly. Um, I give you about 70 percent. And he's going to be mad at me when he listens to this, I think, because I think it might have been like slightly higher than that. Um, it wasn't 100. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it was it was it could only be comforting because I knew he was being 100 percent honest. Right. If he had said. 99.99% sweetheart, don't worry. I would have been like, oh, you're just saying that to comfort me. But because he gave me a real number, I knew he was telling me the truth. And, and so it could be comforting. I'm going to skip ahead because I do want people to, to buy the book, you know. Um, and so if I keep sharing every little bit of it, <laughs> then they won't want to read the book. Sure. And, and I'm giving all the secrets away and everything. Um, but, you know, eventually, you know, you find out that it is a terrorist group that's not there for the bank robbery. Yeah. They're actually there, as you said, to make a statement. You're on the third floor. There's a code word that you're supposed to hear when people knock on the door. You actually barricade yourself in as instructed to make sure that, you know, in the event they get through the door, they still have a barrier. Uh, and you actually set up a couple barriers to make sure that that would take place. Um, yet... When you start communicating, and I, again, I don't want to, I'm trying not to get too far down the path with somebody on the phone from the hotel who actually calls you. When somebody does come into the door, they don't use the code word. Correct. Yeah, they knew my name. Um, and, uh, and, and what was so striking, actually, was not that they knew my name. It was that they were speaking softly and, like, really calmly. And that was so out of place in that environment um, that it was, like, I just, I just knew instantly that they were there to save me. And again, now knowing what I know, I would never have opened the door without a code word. Cause I know that people have people like imitate these guys and come to your door and speak softly so that you'll answer it. Um, you know, sort of falsely lull you into that security. But, uh, thankfully, you know, these, these guys were the real deal and they had American accents and they knew my name and they're speaking like so softly. It's almost hard for me to hear them. Um, and, you know, they're like, are you OK? We would love if you would open the door for us so we can rescue you. And I was like, um, OK, great. Uh, and so Google actually is saying, don't open it. Don't open that door. Um, they, if, if they even said the code word, don't even get near the door. Um, and I was like, you know, you've been super great. Thanks so much. I'll call you back. Click and like put my phone in my pocket because earlier I'd been told to make sure my hands were in the in the air yeah. when I opened the door. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I'm reaching for the doorknob. And I, I'm like, one last check, one last check. Um, who are you with? 
and I don't know why those were the words I chose, but like, who are you with? Like, I thought they'd be like embassy or Marines. I don't know what I thought they'd say. I'm like, they'll say something really American and then I'll open the door. Who are you with? And I'm reaching for the door and one of them like gets really gruff and through the door goes, don't worry about it. I was just getting ready to read that. <laughs> Because it was like you you got all to this point and then all of a sudden it's like don't worry about it. I'd be like, Oh, all right. My, well, then. my hand literally like jerked back from the doorknob. I was like, excuse me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and then you could hear you could literally hear like a smack outside the door, like one of them smacked the other one for saying don't worry about it. And Which then, would make me even more nervous yeah. because then it'd be like oh. <laughs> another fighting. <laughs> right. Well, it's, like, it's like, I don't know, I guess if you were terrorists, you would have just said, like, oh, we're the Navy SEALs. You know, like yeah. you would have claimed the the coolest thing, the best yeah. reason for me to open my door. So maybe it was, you know, maybe it sort of put me at ease that they were, I don't know, doing that. And and then the other one was like, I'm really sorry, Maylee. Um, we're with the embassy. If you could go ahead and open your door, we'd love to escort you to safety or something like that. And I was like, um, yeah, sure. I just was like, I've been in here for 17 hours. If this is my chance out, I'm out, man. Like, I'm not going to last very much longer in here anyway. So. You uh, you finally escape again. It's mm -hmm. seventeen hours at this point. Yep, and, and it wasn't over. Yeah, yeah, and you thought it was at that yeah, time frame. I did, and uh, you don't know the entire story about what happened. I think at this point, but you do run into another fellow American um, who seems to be this cool, calm character dude that just you know, yeah, it's just one of those things that just happens. <laughs> up, um, exactly. you know. Um, when you get in the car with him and then you go, go through all your debriefs and everything else. Yeah. And that's when you find out that um, things are still happening. Stuff's yeah. still going down back there. How many people ended up losing their lives that day? 22 people. It's ironic, the number, yeah. right? It's yeah, crazy, it's the number that came out of that. So um, you later, at what point did you discover that there's this UK SS guy, uh, SAS guy um, yeah. in the picture? Well, at first, I just want to say one thing about that experience. Um, so it was, it was American guys who came to my door and, and took me out and uh, of the hotel, not like took me out. Um, and I think that when I look back at that moment in my life, um, it was really the moment that like patriotism had a tangible meaning to me. And I know that's crazy, right? That's so late in my life. I was 26 years old. I had never been near the military community. I had always taken my safety for granted. Um, and, and I think that even it had become almost trendy to, uh, to talk badly about the US, right? To be like, oh, America is so much crap that we don't do right. And you know, we should do so much better and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and so there was this uh, unreality to me about the people who literally put their lives on the line to protect that. And then I'm in a hotel room on the other side of the planet and like two American dudes in bulletproof vests come and knock on my door and walk me out of the hotel into an armored vehicle. Like there wasn't a French armored vehicle or there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't a Dutch armored vehicle or there, there, there wasn't like right. you know, German dudes in there escort people out. It was Americans. There was not. And, and, and that is something that like, will be with me for the rest of my life because it's so personal, but it also makes me sad that it took something so personal to, to, to show me that. Um, but now it's such an important part of who I am. Like I am so lucky 
to to have had that experience and and be saved in that way so that I could understand the importance of strangers who are willing to walk into a hotel room that's under fire on the other side of the planet and save some girl they've never met because we're from the same country like that's crazy and I said in the armored vehicle that it's a good goddamn day to be an American and like for me every day is a good day to be an American every day and so like it's something that I never take for granted anymore. That said, also, British people, awesome. So, <laughs> um, yeah. yes, truly, super, and, like, and this is the part where the story, like, I don't know. If, if this couldn't be proven, I think people would think I was some sort of, like, crazy sociopathic liar. Um, but, yeah, my husband comes to me and he says, have you seen this news story online in, in the aftermath of the attack? He says it's about the, the deuce it. And I said, how long was this? I'm sorry, time frame. Like within a matter of months, maybe eight oh, months. Oh, okay. It was so very shortly thereafter. Yeah. And I, I said, sweetheart, um, I don't really want to talk about the Ducet. You want me to read the news about it? And he said, I, I really think this. I think you're going to like this one. And and again, he he wouldn't say that if if he weren't correct. And so he showed me this news article and they're saying this like crazy rogue British soldier. I didn't even know what the SAS was at that time. I remember mm-hmm. asking him like, what's the Did SAS? Google it? No, I asked my husband and he was like, <laughs> he was like, it's like a British seals kind of. And I was like, okay, neat. Um, he's like, oh, he pulls on a balaclava and rolls in cause he's shopping nearby with his kit and took out all the terrorists. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like who? And so we look him up and, and we become sort of super fans online, right? Obviously, and we're like stalking him and what's the image that's on his bag and like, you know, what Blackbeard's flag, what's the history, what does it mean? Can I get it like tattooed on my body somewhere? What is this dude's story? Um, and no kidding, by within one year of that event, um, I was sitting across the table from him in a hotel in DC. So just to be clear, um, most people have heard this story from, you know, the news and everything else on Christian Craighead yeah. and his name was not known. At he was still time. in active duty. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, here's this dude just in, you know, stores, shopping, everything else. He hears about it, goes to his car out of his trunk, pulls the gear which is just Jason Bourne-ish, that's, if you ever heard it, right? Yeah, that's crazy. And and goes into the building and does his job, and it's it's crazy, right? Because you don't think you know about like Dev Grew, you know about Delta, and you know about this SAS and SBS and stuff that's out there um, that do all these amazing things. But you saw it from a um, a person, a, a victim. Um, in a room hoping to get rescued type of situation when you did finally meet him a year later and you talked about um, swapping stories what was kind of his story and and I hope one day we can get him on here to talk about it and stuff because we've got um, very close spring connections and stuff that I'm hoping that we can we can do that but what did he say about that moment yeah yeah I just got this call and so you know The thing about Christian Craighead that I think anyone who's met him will tell you is that um, you probably wouldn't guess what he does if you didn't know, right? He's this incredibly like humble, easygoing, um, funny. He has like a really hilarious kind of like dark sense of humor similar to mine um, guy. And I I asked him that because like it was so 
difficult for me to begin to understand what makes someone do that, right? Like, again, I didn't grow up near these communities. The idea of this level of, of duty to your fellow man is like more than I can comprehend to this day. And I asked him that. I was like, what made you do this? Mm-hmm. And he said, it was like the question didn't make sense to him. He was like, I didn't, it, I didn't even hesitate. What do you mean? What made me do this? Like, this is what I do. And the thing about <laughs> the thing about Christian Craighead coming into the complex that day is there was no one else. Like there was no one else. We weren't getting saved if it wasn't Christian. And I didn't know that at the time. Um, but he didn't have to, right? Like yeah. he wasn't instructed to go do that. Um, he didn't have to join the military. He didn't have to be in the SAS, but he did. And I think that he would say that in a way, everything in his life prepared him to be that guy that day to save us. And it's like, I'm sitting there across from him and I'm trying to figure out what the hell you say to like a complete stranger who risked his life literally to save yours when he didn't know you. And I'm trying to explain to him, like, you didn't just save me in a selfish way, right? Like you saved my brother still has his sister and my parents have their daughter and my now husband has a wife um, and that's one person you saved like over 700 so like think about the ripple effect of what you did that day and he's just he's just so humble about it. he's just like i did what i do and i did it alone because i was alone and i did it because i was there and it's like i don't know i i literally credit christian craighead with with my life with all of our lives and and i don't know how you ever what's a word that that yeah puts meaning to that. I yeah, can't I don't know how imagine. you'd ever repay that. I, I think, you know, it's so funny. We're, we talk about how we're put on this earth to do something yeah. or the, some people believe that. And sure. you know, I certainly believe that. But sure. I mean, the course of events that this man and what he did and all the training that he had gone through and stuff like that. I'm sorry, my eye is burning. <laughs> um, Onions over there, huh? Yeah. And um, he gets there and, and he does his thing for his job that he's been trained to do and everything at that moment. Yeah, but I think after that, he's also, um, it's kind of like it's culminated to a point where, all right, I did that. Now it's time for me to exit the service. Because I, I think so. after that, not too long after that, he uh, exited. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I hope that his career feels kind of complete. Um, it certainly does to me. And it is funny. I remember my husband saying to me at one point, uh, before we had met him, he said to me, um, do you understand like who came to save you? And I was like, uh, no, but like. He has a black beard patch on his back. I don't know. Like, he's awesome. What am I supposed to understand? And and Paul said to me, he's not just a guy who saved you. Like, this was the guy to come and save you because of what he had learned in his career, because of where he was in his career, because of CQB, because of everything that he knew. Um, Like, it it was like that. Like, everything in his life led him to that moment. And and I talk about this a lot when I talk about young people. My brother is uh, 22, and he says that he feels like a lot of people in his generation are very unfulfilled, right? Like a lot of young people don't really want families as much as people used to. A lot of young people aren't religious as much as people, you know, used to be interested in that. And, and so I think that, that, um, and I'm not saying everyone should want a family or be religious, right? Like that's everybody's choice. But, um, I think that some people feel a bit adrift and I, I look at the, the community of people I've met since that, that have served in our armed forces. And I think like, that is 
that is fulfillment. That is doing something with your life that matters. Like when I sat across the table from Christian and said, like, you gave me my life back. That's why you do what you do. Yeah. That's why you've been through everything that you've been through. Like, I don't know that there could be a moment that that makes someone feel like they've done what they were put on this earth to do as much as that moment. And I don't mean to speak for him. I hope he feels that way. I certainly feel like that was the day he accomplished what he was put on this earth to do. I mean, it's crazy. Um, so I want to get into a piece of the book because mm -hmm. what you're describing, I mean, we talk about on this uh, show a lot of times about post-traumatic stress, traumatic yeah. brain injury, military yeah. sexual trauma. I mean, yeah. all of those depression and, and all those different things. And I mean, you've got a, you've got a lot of the um, post-traumatic stress that you keep referring to because you go start seeing a therapist, obviously, afterwards to try to get help. Yeah. But there's one piece in here that I kind of dog-eared. Mm -hmm. um, well, I got a couple pieces in here that I dog-eared. But one thing that I wanted to describe or read to is that I think it's five weeks post. Mm -hmm. You said, I found deep solace today. I talked to our friends who were in the military. They had uh, no morbid curiosity prompting them to ask about the worst details of my experience. They have seen war up close themselves. Uh, they were not awed. They did not treat me like a freak show in a circus. They did not mince their words, and they did not look at me with pity. Um, they heard me out, and they empath empathized and shared similar stories of war and what it does to people. They asked about my PTSD symptoms, like it was the most normal thing in the world. They shared some of the issues they had had after their first tours in the Middle East, and it was like I was in an alternate universe where everything I am experiencing makes sense. They talked about how they couldn't band with their loved ones when they first got back, how they blatantly disrespected authority and nonsensical rules, how they resented how easy things are here, and, and people whose most difficult decision today will be which brand of chips to buy. They explained that suddenly they had a hard time relating to the culture that had always been theirs. In fact, they had reverse culture shock. And while everyone else was laughing and enjoying their freedom, these two had been thinking about the cost of that freedom and that they had kept them from being able to fit in the way they had before. It was like they could see in, into my mind and into my heart and soul. And for the first time since getting back, I felt like I maybe, like maybe I could still fit in somewhere. Like there is a tiny little paradise where I can hide away sometime and forget what it's like to be a freak. And, you know, it's interesting from hearing a lot of guys with post-traumatic stress that we, we talk to and everything. Um, it's some of the same challenges that they experience and also with uh, traumatic brain injury and, and then just some of the training in which you want to, you're back against the wall. You want to be in a restaurant. You want to make yeah. sure you understand your exits um, at all time frames, um, fight or flight uh, challenges, um, angry, uh, hard to carry emotions, difficulty to get one emotion to stay for very long. Um, you know, all those different types of things that I think people people make comment about, um, I just wish I had Maylee back. You know, as if Maylee left and somebody's now come in, like you said, and taken over your body, yeah. and you're a different person at this point. No, you're still Maylee. It's just the new Maylee, and we all have to help adjust Maylee to, you know, the challenges that she's dealing with and get her through that, but we also have to come to grips that the old Maylee's not coming back. That's right. Yeah, I think the person who had the hardest time coming to grips with that was me. I, I really struggled with the fact that like, I wanted desperately to be the person I had always been to everybody, right? Sure. I wanted to be this successful Google employee. Um, and instead I'm like 
sobbing on the floor of my apartment because mm-hmm. I can't go to the grocery store without having a panic attack, right? Like, what is happening? Um, but, you know, when you read that excerpt, I think, let me try to put my thoughts in order here. First of all, Jessica Buchanan said to me last week, uh, what a lonely thing to survive. What a lonely thing to survive. And I thought that was really well put because um, suddenly the circles that I did run in couldn't mm-hmm. understand at all. Like, I mean, not even remotely. And I'm glad they couldn't, right? Like, I'm so happy that I don't have all these people in my life going like, oh yeah, terrorist attack yeah. abroad. Whew, yeah. yeah, I remember that one, that sucks. Um, right, like I'm glad that 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 our country is such a wonderful place that that's not a, a relatable experience for most people. Um, but when you are trying to survive something really lonely, the loneliness is this exacerbating factor. It makes it so much harder. And so it, it was so interesting that so many people from the military community, and especially now that my book has come out, um, have embraced my experience and, and they're able to um, tell me about theirs and, and it feels so similar because I never thought in a million years that, that you know, veterans would be the, the folks reading my book and saying like, oh my God, this sounds really familiar. Um, there's a, there's a, a Vietnam vet who left a review of my book saying like, this book helped me process my PTS that I've had for decades, right? Like, because you put words to it and, and, and that's so amazing. And it's also like, obviously deeply meaningful because you think that like, the types of, oh, I don't know if I can say this without crying. Whew, I can, here we go. Um, the types of people who are willing to put their lives on the line to come and save me from that scenario then are helped by what I'm able to produce afterward. Like, that's the dream, right? Like, to give anything back to that community is is is, is the dream. Um, so I did, I started to become like more involved in, in that community and, and to talk about these experiences. And the thing about PTS, I don't know if you would say this is true in your experience, is that it's a real thing, right? Like now everybody's like, that's absolutely 100% a thing that people have, but I don't have it. Like I don't, PTS doesn't affect me, but it's real and it affects people and like they need solutions, but like not me. Um, but then in the same breath, they'll go on and say things like, well, um, you know, I, I have to sit with uh, the view of the exit when I'm in a restaurant or, um, you know, I, I, I really struggle with rage. Or one, one time I was on the phone with a guy who said um, I would come home and in my garage crush like half a case of beer before I could go in and deal with my family. Yeah. Um, and, and, and those are the same people who will then say, but, like, but I don't have PTS. Like that's the thing that happens to other people. Um, and so what I hope that I was able to do here is because I said the same thing. I was like, I don't have that, right? Like I can't have that. Um, But I hope that I was able to wrap words around it in a way that people can say like, oh, if that's what PTS is, I have some of that, right? Because like step one is like, I have some of that. And then step two is like, now what do we do to, to start to make that better? And step three, honestly, for me was, how do I grieve the person that I was before who's never coming back? Because the 26 year old Google employee who couldn't even fathom, you know, getting mugged in Kenya is not the terrorist attack survivor that's sitting in front of you today, right? Like they're just not um, the same person. And so, so I think those are the steps and, and I hope that that is, um, comes through in, in the book. And I hope that it helps people who feel like they've survived and are now lonely in their suffering. I think you described that actually 
quite well as to what most people within the military experience with post-traumatic stress are those that are in denial of both. And, and I think it's um, a challenge within our community because it's um, perceived as less yeah. mainly, yeah. Um, especially for those within the soft community who yeah. probably experience it at the highest level because they're at the tip of the spear and yeah. they're the ones who experience those uh, traumatic effects more frequently exactly. over more periods of time than the average it person. also deeply affects high achievers it deeply mm-hmm. deeply affects high achievers so when yeah. you talk about the soft community like yeah. absolutely when you are the best of the best um you make no room for yourself to struggle and your inability to accept that you're struggling actually makes you struggle more and like mm. I, I really struggled with that right like i was like i just need to get over it but what's happening is not something that should have any shame or guilt associated with it. It's literally a system of neurological pathways in your brain that have been altered in a specific way and can be altered again um, to, to help you cope better. But, you know, like that's, that's the thing that I felt so acutely at that time was the guilt and the shame over the struggle that I wish that I could take from anyone experiencing PTS. Because like, if we could all just look at it and be like, oh yeah, sure altered neurological pathways. Like there are many different kinds of, of treatment that I can try. Um, and then I don't have to feel rage. I don't have to feel like I want six beers before I can deal with my family. I don't have to wake up in a cold sweat every night. I don't have to, um, hit the ground when I hear a car backfire, right? Like, and those are symptoms of PTS, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's not, I, I don't know what people imagine when they're like PTS. That's the thing that happens to other people, not me. I'm like, do you have nightmares? Like, do you wake up in a cold sweat? Do you have panic attacks? Do you hit the ground when you hear a car backfire? Like, then, then you're, you're experiencing some, some measure of, of PTS. And it makes sense that you are because of the environment that you have been uh, training in, right. And, and working in for decades. Um, so it's like, there's, there's no shame in my game, baby. Like this is a thing that happens and, and we know how to, we know how to start to make it better. So well, I think um, a lot of veterans and people who experience some level of post-traumatic stress do, like most, they put a coping mechanism in, they oh, compartmentalize yeah. it, they push oh, yeah. it away, and then that allows them to live in this, what they believe to be is the new world, and it's more not reality because, like you said, they haven't confronted their deepest demons. Yeah. But but everybody, I, I, I say it to folks that... Um, and a lot of decisions that, or a lot of things that happen in our life, you're going to pay a price at oh, some yeah. point. And, and for those who are, suppre- are compressing and pushing down the post-traumatic stress, it, it does end up coming at some other place. And it may manifest in a very different way. The anger Absolutely. ends up having secondary effects on your family members, yeah. and um, especially if you have children or stuff. They don't understand, Absolutely. you know, why you, my father is not only maybe um, taking, you know, prescribed medication uh, by psychiatrist yeah. in order to leave the pain and everything, yeah. along with the alcohol, along with the rage, um, so it looks like I have a drug-taking, alcoholic father or parent um, who just can't cope with society. And listen, you had a bad experience, but listen, I'm your son or I'm your daughter. Mm-hmm. Why can't you be here for me? And it's that that challenge, I, know, uh, yeah. I think, of trying to balance everything, which, like you said, adds more pressure. Yes. Well, I mean, it's every generation, right? Exactly. Every generation was raised by somebody with PTSD yep. from World War One all the way to my kids today a million percent just it's it's just a way of life and it's it's an american way of life at this point. yeah 
And it does feel like, like I so get the coping mechanisms, right? Like I so get it. I wanted to lose myself in alcohol, absolutely. Um, it was the only thing that, that could take the edge off, that instantly take the edge off. Um, and then like the edge would, you know, come back tenfold, right? Is, is really the, the issue um, when we sublimate. Um, so it's hard, like I, I do not judge anyone who doesn't know how to cope with their post-traumatic stress. Like I only found my way into the right coping mechanisms because my whole support network was, you know, involved in that process with me. Um, but, you know, I hope that people can recognize, try to recognize when their coping mechanisms are unhealthy and look for something different because there are a lot of options yeah. out there now and, and really interesting ones. Um, you know, if I could go back and do PTSD treatment with MDMA, I would be there. So, yeah. well, I mean, so now there, there's RTMS that's out RTMS, there. Ketamine, um, SGBs, microdose, uh, yeah. psilocybin. Yep. Microdose psilocybin. I was just talking to a guy in Switzerland who did, uh, MDMA microdosing with his treatment. Um, ayahuasca retreats, right? Like yeah. a million. Those things. have been pretty amazing. So I you talked about amazing. the rewiring, you know, and it's funny because everybody mentions about how, you know, we don't use, but a certain percentage of our brain. And then you listen to uh, someone like Sean Ryan, you know, who's been on this show, um, who went and had that same treatment, yep. come back and talk about, you know, how his brain as he was going through this experience, um, it blocked the current route. And so you think of it as a five lane highway, mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden um, you've got an accident that happens up ahead. And so Waze or Google Maps or whatever reroutes you and takes you a different route because yep. this, this process blocks that of where you're trying to suppress it mm -hmm. and it forces not only that memory to come back up, but then all of a sudden you have clarity on yep. every other memory and that whole process and listening to the experience, um, I, I really do hope a lot more veterans start looking into it or folks who are, are you know, uh, dealing with post-traumatic stress and military sexual trauma and those types of things because um, not that I'm encouraging you to necessarily go and I'm hoping more of that the VA starts. Yeah. There's been discussion about oh, can we awesome. bring this treatment yeah. to America? Don't go try to do a vision quest with a dude named Earl in a trailer park. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what yeah, I'm concerned yeah. with, right? So that's not well, what I'm let's, encouraging. Let's do some research. But um, I think there are more and more of these veteran programs that are coming out there that try to do it in a legitimate way and trying to help their brothers and sisters struggle through some of these issues or get past some of these um, issues. And, and, and when I hear the, what I love to hear is more of the backside, like your own experience with Stella mm -hmm. Ganglion Block, yeah. you know, and, you know, and how it helped you and, and uh, others who went through, sorry, there was an ant in my face. Um, another one that went through RTMS and had a very similar type of experience. I had had um, someone that went through shock, uh, just regular shock yeah. treatment type of thing yeah. and finally got emotions like crying or laughing and things that did not really, they, they'd done it, but it'd been more fake, yeah. you know, or whatever. They're just trying to do it to fit in as yeah. opposed to it being real and sure. deep. Yep. And so those types of, uh, you had a very similar type of experience, you know, yourself. Yeah. With the, with the SGB, it was immediate. Well, Vandy yeah. started talking to me after the second injection, and it just, psh, just wow. waterworks. It just, yeah. it just, it's a relief. I'm not saying it's a permanent fix because, like we were sure. talking, it's not a silver bullet. It's not, you know, but it's nothing is. It's yeah. a great step towards moving towards the right way to do things. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like when I hear the two of you listing all of these options, 
I hope that if people are listening who are struggling, that they find hope in that because it's never hopeless. That's the thing. Yeah. Like in the reason that MDMA became a treatment and, and, um, and, and psilocybin and ketamine, those were for people who were treatment resistant, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so you've gone through talk therapy and that didn't work. And so it's like, never give up because there's something out there. There's hormone yeah. panels and there's vitamin rebalancing yeah. and there's SGBs and there's RTMS and there's a psychedelic treatment and talk therapy and, 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 and so it's like, I just hope that people, never lose hope. I was lucky that like the first thing I tried worked very well for me. Um, and I was committed to getting better and it was a lot of work. Um, so I think that's part of it, but, but yeah, like there is something out there that will help you feel better. That will help you get your emotions back online. That will help you check your rage. That will help you sleep. Um, and that's, that's like worth finding. Well, and, and not every program will work for every individual. Absolutely. Trauma is relative, just like treatment is going to be relative. Exactly. Absolutely. And you hear these, uh, you know, if, from, at least from the veteran community, community, you hear people say something like, well, uh, you know, you can't just go to one um, counselor or whatever because mm -hmm. you may have to go through a hundred to find the right mm -hmm. one. But when you do, trust me, it's going to be a breakthrough. Yeah, but yeah. that's only one breakthrough. Then yep. it may be, well, that's only, you know, that helped you move the needle from this point to this point. Yep. But in order to go to the next, you may have to seek another alternative. Yep. Again, you're And also, I think there's this thing about quit trying to be the former person. Yes. It's like you said, try to cope and deal with the person you are today, but do it in a way in which, you know, you find comfort and yeah, can live I, in your own skin. I think that my treatment did not really start to work until I could say that, like until I was like, well, she's gone. She died in the terrorist attack. Um, who am I now? And now, you know, where I sit today, there's so much beauty in that. I got to decide, I got to choose again, the priorities in my life and, you know, where my loved ones fit in and, and what matters to me and how I want to spend my career and my time. Um, and so I was able to uh, try to turn that experience into something meaningful. Um, but I also just want to jump back to something that you said about these like little breakthroughs and finding them and trying a hundred counselors. Like I understand that it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask. You're, you're looking at people who are struggling um, in a way that they have maybe never struggled before in their lives and, and maybe they want to die and maybe they're screaming at their family and they feel guilty. And then you're saying, well, like, just go try 100 counselors till you have your first breakthrough. Like, that's a lot to ask someone who's having a really hard time. Um, and so my point is just that, like, I don't, I don't want to minimize that. I think the most badass people on the planet are the people who keep fighting until they find something that works for them because like that is a really tall order and it is a especially tall order when you're miserable and especially if you feel like you want to die which i really did um so like it's it's a lot to ask and it's a really long hard fight but like i was saying to you before this started the only thing harder than that is living your life day in and day out with post-traumatic stress and not doing anything about it so like find a way to fight. You created the book or wrote the book, Terrorist Attack Girl, um, a true story, Maylee Chapin. And this is one way it, it was probably cathartic in some ways, I would imagine for you to be able to at least to tell your story. But, you know, you said kind of like how we look at it, if you can touch one life, if you can make a difference somewhere, um, you know, tell some, uh, tell the folks actually where they can find the book if they're looking for the book. 
Yeah, um, it's, you know, I made it available on Amazon. You can also order it through Barnes and Noble and the um, the audiobook, uh, which I narrated, is on Audible as well. Oh, I didn't know you had an uh, audiobook. Yeah, nice. I joke with people. I'm like, I never know how someone listens to a podcast this long and then is like, you know what? I want to hear more of that girl's voice. <laughs> um, but like sometimes But they if do. they do. Yeah. So um, the and then you also, did you create an app? Or? Yeah. Yeah, so tell us about that. Yeah, I worked with my husband, um, who's the, the coolest, um, to create an app to take everything that I had learned in therapy, plus all the research that I spent months doing afterward on um, evidence-based talk therapy protocols, basically, and translating that into an app that people can use on their own. Because something that I ran into over and over was, well, one, therapy is like incredibly expensive. I spent like $8,000 on my therapy, which is insane. Um, and shouldn't be the case. Uh, and it's hard to schedule and it's hard to find a great therapist and you might have to go through hundred counselors. So it can be a really discouraging process. Um, but also that not everybody wants to tell someone else about mm -hmm. the worst thing they've ever lived through, yeah. right? Like especially sexual assault survivors. Um, but also like I've talked to a lot of vets who are like, why should I sit there and tell someone who can't possibly understand? They don't really understand what I've been through. Um, and so what I really wanted was to give those people an affordable, accessible option that, does not require you to divulge anything about yourself to another person. It's like a starting place that you can work through yourself. So my app is telling me to start an activity. Yeah, oh my gosh, look at that interface. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's so great. So I downloaded it today, so I will, will keep in touch and let you know how it's going. Please do, yeah. Um, and sometimes for people, it's, it's like a bridge, right? They'll do um, some homework assignments in the app and then say, you know what? Actually, I think I could talk to someone about this now. Like, I'm ready to go talk to a therapist. And that's great. Or, um, you know, they'll get in touch with me and end up in a, in a ayahuasca retreat uh, through a nonprofit. Like, so, so many good options. But again, it's just, it's one option that's out there for people who are struggling. That's uh, really cool. Um, oh, and it's called Trauma Brace. I, should yeah. say I was just going to say about that and, and can you so trauma brace mm -hmm. and can you get it on the just go to your regular app just download store yeah. yep. yep it's on it's ios only right now um so i do apologize for that uh, there's some like security what issues with say? android <laughs> i know and then i always follow it up by being like because of security issues anyway uh so yikes um but uh, we are working really hard to get the android version and in fact we are just a couple weeks away from uh finalizing the ukrainian version which will be free um because there's it's there's such a need for any type of mental health solution in, in Ukraine in the aftermath of, or the current, I don't know what you call it, sort of an aftermath that's still ongoing um, in Ukraine. So we're working on that as well. And people who want to follow you on social media or those types of things to see what you're, where you are, where you're going, what's next on Maylee's agenda, and um, where can they do that? I still um, buy I'm, <laughs> I'm on Instagram, at uh, Maylee Chapin. And the thing I always tell people is like, and I say it at the end of my book, but, you know, reach out to me and, and, and tell me your story. And, and, you know, if you've read the book or you liked it or you heard my story or whatever, like, just send me your thoughts because... I think sometimes people feel like they can't actually do that. They're like, oh, she doesn't mean it or she doesn't want us to reach out. Um, but I really do. And like, again, that's part of my healing of like not feeling lonely in this experience. So I love when people reach out. Um, I look forward to talking with people on there. So are you going to keep like a blog or anything? Have you thought about that or a, a 
I'm like, I'm like boring and kind of old if you're not getting that from me. Like on the inside, I'm very boring and old. Um, yeah. No. And the reason that I don't, and, and the reason that I don't post super often on social media um, is because I really, really try, really trying to do something I've never been great at in my life, which is like balance and sustainability. Um, and so I try to really focus on spending time with my family. Uh, and staying off of my device. I was, Doesn't that bring uh, it full circle? I was right. going to call you out on that and go, wait, the girl who used to look for a way. What would the researcher uh, say? I know, right? <laughs> There's a young lady out there somewhere whose job at Google is to try to figure out a way to keep you on your phone. At least one. And, <laughs> and sustain you for those 13 seconds. That's it. And Maylee just said she's not going to do that. Yep. Don't come to me. That's right. Um, Sometimes May it takes a terrorist attack to Sometimes. get your tech priorities in order. <laughs> Maylee, I really appreciate you coming and joining us here in the podcast and sharing your amazing story. And uh, people can go out and get your book, like she said, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those types of great things. Um, you can probably get the link off of social media um, as well. Download the app. Um, you know, Use that to, to your advantage. Seek treatment. Uh, quit trying to kid yourself about uh, the pain or the, the things that you're going through and why you may feel the way you feel. Yeah. And you may find that those small circles are out there. If you just go out and start talking about it a little bit more, um, everybody wants to keep their circle small. But yeah. get out there and actually start uh, having a conversation. You'll probably find other like-minded people. So, again, Maylee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.